0: Completely within our control. We're living through the single biggest culture shift of our time. This is the time for us to just really take charge.
1: That's what revolutions do. They enable the impossible. For most people, there isn't one moment that tells you it's time for a career change. Instead, it creeps up on you over time in a million little ways. But you have to be paying attention. Katherine Minshew and her co-founder built The Muse, an online career resource to help people catch those moments and know what to do with them. In today's episode, we talk with Catherine about The Muse and about her new book, The New Rules of Work, which aims to be a sort of playbook for navigating your career. Let's dig in. I'm Megan Keeney Anderson, and this is The Gross Show. So I want to start off by talking a little bit about The Muse. For anyone who's not familiar with it, can you give us a summary of what The Muse offers to its visitors?
0: Yeah. So I like to describe The Muse as building the most trusted and beloved place to navigate your career. The idea is essentially that you've got all of these career advice websites, job search websites that in many cases are transactional, they're clunky, and we wanted to put the human at the center. So when people come to The Muse, they can have career advice, speak with career experts and coaches, acquire skills, search for jobs, see inside companies and career paths and hear from real people in those fields about what it's like and what does it take to be a successful software engineer or uh, enterprise salesperson or ops manager.
1: You started the Muse in 2011, is that correct?
0: Yeah, five and a half years ago, I guess.
1: Yeah. So have you seen the average user change at all? Is there an average user of the Muse?
0: it's changed so it's changed a lot um you know it's funny we still we still have the sort of core original user community but i think the definition of who is a user has grown and evolved a pretty good amount you know as the company has when i started the muse our original target was women in the first 10 to 15 years of their career. And, you know, people ask why part of it. That was me. I yep. was 25 years old. I had um, come through a series of jobs that were, you know, all of them taught me something, but they weren't that thing. They weren't right. And so we were building for people that were like us. Uh, my co-founder is also both women. And I had a you know very specific vision. And what we figured out pretty quickly was that That vision applied to a wider set of people. So from the beginning, we had men using the site. They used to joke that they were sort of secret musers. And we realized about a year in that we didn't want the site to be limited by gender. Though that said, we are very, very big on making sure that the the vision of the ideal workplace and, and the sort of future of work includes badass women, incredible men, people of different genders, races, backgrounds, abilities, orientations. So I think that's always been a real passion of ours. But any case, and then you know as the company grew, we also started to see a lot of people from different generations were using the site, both you know Gen Z, Gen X, and Boomers. And so now I think the classic user is still early 30s very committed to their career, living in a major metropolitan area. But we have 50 million people who use the Muse to navigate their careers, and, and it is a pretty diverse bunch.
1: Yeah, I would imagine with 50 million, you get a big range in there. How do you, okay, so you're you're sort of early in, in your own career. It's really easy to start from what you know, from what you're passionate about. But how do you start to broaden your own perspective to understand what a late-stage career um, or job searcher is looking for? What people very different from you are looking for? Is it that there is that common ground that all job seekers and all professionals share? Or how do you expand to understand those other populations?
0: Part of it is making sure that we have more voices represented on the muse. When you come to the site, there's a lot of perspectives, advice, featured employees, stories, and there's not just one type of person. So for example, on the career advice part of the platform, we have hundreds of experts and they range from early twenties to seventies. People with backgrounds as executives, as engineers, as therapists in some cases, as lawyers. And so, you know, I think it's really helpful that it's not just me, Catherine, um, sharing one career perspective. It's this really eclectic, inclusive set of different people and not everything on the Muse is going to be for everybody. And in fact, we've built um, and are continuing to build a lot of personalization into the site to do our best to match an individual who's using the Muse to navigate their career with the right content the right job, the right expert advice at the right time.
1: Yeah, has anything surprised you as far as the questions people are asking or the types of of needs that they
0: have? Yes. You know, it's funny. I I think one of the things I love about what I do is that so much is constantly changing and so I'm surprised all the time. I sort of expected the number of people who would come to the muse with questions around, you know, what am I doing with my life? Am I on the right path? Save but, me. Um, yes, exactly. Save me. But um, I feel like this sort of eclectic and, and unusual career paths that people have taken um, sometimes can be very surprising. I think that the the extent to which people constantly feel like they're alone, when in fact they're dealing with understandably frustrating but very common problems really did surprise me a bit at first. And I'll just, you know, I'll give you a classic example, which is that looking for a new job is not a very pleasant experience, right? It's a process that is designed in many ways to be impersonal. It takes away the sort of humanity of a, you know, an individual person, a human, and replaces it with a resume, an applicant tracking system, you know, an automated form email. And that is so hard. And yet I think when you're in the middle of it, it often does feel, and it's very understandable, it feels like something's wrong with me? Or why is this not moving faster? And so what's interesting is, you know, the muse was created to provide a lot of very tactical and specific advice. But I think the emotional support element has surprised me and how important it is sometimes just to tell people, this is normal. It sucks, but it's normal. And you just have to keep moving forward. You're going to get through it. And here's other people who have been in the same situation, how they dealt with it. But like, just knowing that somebody else has been in that trench with you can be really helpful sometimes. That makes a lot of sense.
1: All right, so let's shift gears a little bit. I think when I started my career, I don't think anyone was talking about a company's culture. I don't think anybody was talking about the, you know, the personality of a company or what it's like to work there. Why do you think that the culture has become so important to recruitment and to someone's happiness at a job over the last decade or so?
0: I think there's a couple trends that are really driving it. One is the always-on culture. So, you know, you're probably like me. You've got a smartphone. People email you at all hours. You're not necessarily expected to respond, but work is with you. It's more present in your life than ever before, and it's not something that you necessarily leave at your desk at 5 p.m. and come back to the next morning. In fact, I think that for many people, especially people that are knowledge workers, that work in very digital environments, there's this expectation that your work and your life will become more intertwined. And because of that, I think people have therefore higher expectations for what work should look like, what it should provide, and the value it should add to the rest of their life. I think a second theme is that um, the internet's made it easier than ever before to see what other companies and jobs are like. So for example, you know, if you've only ever known IBM, and maybe you have a friend who works at Dell, that's a fairly limited set of company cultures to be exposed to. And I think there was often a sense that works work. This is the way things are. And now you can go online and see not only thousands of jobs, that's been available for a while, but you can really learn more about companies. You can, again, you can watch videos of their employees talking about what it's like to work there. And it really lets people say, well, wait a second, what What matters to me? You know, there's a whole section in the book that I have coming out next week about how do you identify your core values for what you want out of your career and then match those to a role, a function, a company. I think people are starting to get smarter about that. And when they see other people doing it, It allows them to feel like they could they could choose that path for themselves too.
1: And much like how you know your brand is what other people say about you when you walk out of the room, employees are doing their own sharing about a company's culture, and uh, you know through social media, through other channels. Everybody's got that platform. So you're right; the culture just kind of seeps out, regardless of of what you can do. Yeah, Uh, exactly.
0: And I think that's a really good thing. I mean, I would love to see a world in which companies that invest in creating a great culture are rewarded with more applications, more talented employees, more people who want to work there, and the companies that deprioritize that and that don't create a great culture suffer for that. And I mean, you know, do I think online anonymous reviews are exactly the best way to do that? No, I have, I have my doubts, but I think that there are a lot of really interesting trends that are pushing us towards a world in which people have information and an applicant can be a more informed consumer before they simply throw their hat in the ring for a job that might actually be a nightmare.
1: So you're in a really interesting position because I would imagine that as you know one of the co-founders of the Muse, you spend a lot of time thinking about your own company's culture. When you look back, what aspect of the existing culture or your hiring process would you like to improve would, do you think about changing?
0: Hmm, that's a really interesting one and it's funny because I've been thinking about that a lot right now because we we grew pretty substantially over the last couple of years and I think when I look back at that growth, there are things we did well and there are also things that I wish we could go back over and and do differently. I will say you know we've always had a culture of ownership of people really taking responsibility, having input into major company decisions, being able to solicit ideas for the product and for the strategy from a wide variety of places and I think we did a you know a good job of keeping some pieces of that but um, you know to your to your question I guess in terms of what I would change one, I would probably have hired slightly more slowly because I think when you start hiring quickly, it can be hard for the organization not to uh, feel like it needs to cut corners. And, you know, that can either be corners on culture or corners on sort of skill and confidence and ability to do the job. I think to have a successful team and a successful company, you have to keep the bar on both very, very high. And then also, I think it's really important for us, we really talk a lot about keeping a balance between... Being successful and driven and getting things done, but also being good people and being kind and being flexible, and both of those things need to exist in balance with each other. So you can't just sit around singing kumbaya, right. you know, having a wonderful time and getting nothing done. But you also don't want to create a slave-driving culture where great people leave because again, they can find something better elsewhere. And so I think that um, we're constantly fine-tuning that, and that's something I'm really focused on right now: is how do we get that right balance? Yeah, that is really interesting.
1: So uh, let me dig into that a little bit more. Do you think that as companies add in, are, are more friendly, add in more cultural elements, is there a risk of, of slowing people down, of, of entitlement? How do you sort of walk that line of creating an environment where people really want to be, but also making sure that they're there to
0: work? I think that is one of the big questions that a lot of successful companies are grappling with right now. Because... You obviously want to, as a business, provide uh, you know, an incredible environment and, um, and, and give your people all the things they need to be great at their jobs, to enjoy coming to work, but you also can take it too far. And you know, I've heard people refer to their employers as adult daycare before, right. and that's obviously not what anybody wants. So I would say um, one of the ways that we've handled that at The Muse is very open and frequent communication and transparency back and forth. So, for example, what do I mean by that? We did a benefit survey um, right after we raised our Series A. And again, I think we've done it a couple of times since, where we list out a lot of the different things that we could provide as perks, as benefits, everything from, you know, we've, we've always covered healthcare care at 100%. But we could go above and beyond that, increase dependent coverage. Uh, we could do more for 401ks. We could also have more snacks, have more wellness There's um, endless activities. list of things. Yep. Exactly. There's so many things. And so we literally ask people, what matters to you? And we survey the entire company and then we present the results, good and bad, back to everyone and say, here's what matters and here's what we're doing about it. And, you know, it's funny. We found that at The Muse, people valued one set of things very highly, but other things like wellness activities. We have a lot of people who love yoga. They love exercise. They're, they're very focused on being more healthy, but that might not be the thing that they care most about the company providing for them. And so then we were able to say, great, here's the spend that we're allocating towards all of these things that were priorities. And here's the things that we're not going to do as a company. And if you disagree, we're going to do another survey in nine months or so. I forget exactly the time period, but we are responding to what the community believes. And, and of course, you know, we also do have specific things we take a stand on. Like we really have pushed hard since the early days to have really fair and generous parental leave policies, because we just believe that's really important right, for our business overall. Identity. Exactly. But I think that that line between creating a, a great culture and creating a culture of entitlement is not an easy one to walk, but it's one that um, I think we all need to do our best to navigate, because at the end of the day, I do think that creating a, a good company and organizational environment is so beneficial for your team. And you know, I think companies that do that are going to continue to see that it's it's a worthwhile investment.
1: Great. All right. So let's shift gears a little bit and talk about the the book that you do have rolling out. It's called The New Rules of Work. Can you tell me a little bit about it right off the bat?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So the book is the product of the last couple years of work. Um, my co-founder and I realized a few years ago that we had this incredible body of knowledge on the muse.com, uh, thousands of articles, data points from over 50 million people every year who use the site, but there was no single A to Z guide for how to navigate it all you know for example if you um if you're thinking about being more productive or being a better manager or workplace communication you might find 200 articles on the muse that can help you with that but there was no single sort of pathway you know uh, someone taking you by the hand and saying okay let's start at step 1 here's how you do this and we heard a lot of people ask us Would you ever consider doing a book? And so that's where the new rules of work came from. And it's divided into three parts. We start with, you know, what do you actually want? The entire first section is dedicated to uncovering the right career path, articulating your values, and then aligning where you're headed with what really matters to you. Part two is how do you go out and get it? Everything from, you know, finding great jobs interviewing, applying, negotiating salary, you know, all of all of that stuff, which frankly can be very, very stressful. And then part three is really succeeding and growing at the role you're in. So relationships with your boss and colleagues, being more productive, taking charge of your own career and development if your company doesn't do that for you. And how do you delegate, manage up and start to really establish a reputation and authority within the workplace so you can have the career path you want, not just the one that happens to you.
1: Why new rules? What's the biggest thing that's changed about how people find and navigate
0: work today? I think the easy answer to this question would be technology, although that's not what I think is at the root of it, but it, it is impossible to ignore the fact that the way that tech has, has sort of infiltrated every aspect of the workday means that some of the old ways of doing things no longer make sense. And, you know, it's easier than ever before to work remotely, to speak to people at a distance, to be more flexible with how you get your work done. But that also means that there are a different set of expectations and reality. And, and one of the quick stories that, um, that we talked about in the book was uh, when Alex and I were interviewing somebody on Google Hangout a while back going great this, I was a, this is a guy a gentleman very thoughtful smart interesting and all of a sudden someone starts banging on the door and they they do not stop and on your door gets, his door no his door his door and he gets increasingly nervous and finally he, he essentially has to get up and get it and he's not wearing pants <gasps> <laughs> yes he had a, you know dress shirt I and mean, he was wearing boxers but a dress shirt and boxers and you know we just you know it's like always wear pants basically always always always. Just because it's a video interview and they can only see you from the, you know, from the yep. neck up, always wear pants.
1: Unchanging um, static rule. Yes, we'll exactly. will be true 10 years from now.
0: If you remember one thing no. But, um, th- but back to your question, I think that um, the biggest change, you know, outside of some of the, the smaller, um, you know, use LinkedIn and, and here's how to network digitally as well as in person, blah, blah, blah. All of that stuff is, is important. But I think the most critical thing is that you as an individual have to take control and take charge of your career. A company is not going to do it for you. They are no longer those same pathways that companies used to put out and say, do X, get promoted, do Y, move up. Um, Those are, are, are very quickly becoming a thing of the past. And the people that are most successful today, they are in charge of figuring out what are the skills I have? And what are the skills I need to get where I want to go? And how do I acquire those? And then how do I demonstrate that I have them so I'm well positioned to move into that next step? And that's not necessarily an easy thing to do. We lay out a tremendous number of exercises and templates and worksheets and, and essentially tools for people to navigate this new reality. But that's why we felt it was important to say, these are the new rules. This is what um, is going to make someone successful. And, and we have, you know, a, a fairly substantial body of data points from the muse.com to back that up.
1: Isn't that funny how, uh, on the one hand, whereas companies are investing more in culture and perks and elements designed to attract people and keep them there, on the other hand, the workforce has never been more driven by change and opportunistic. So there's not kind of like you join a company and you stay there for 20 years and you slowly progress year after year into new roles. It strikes me that that's a very different tenor than there used to be.
0: Absolutely. And I think it's, you know, it can be a a tremendous opportunity. It's easier than it ever has been for people to make a major career change. Not easy. It's not probably honestly ever going to be quote unquote easy, but it's easier. It's more possible. And there are more paths. I sort of liken it to previously looking at a map with sort of a finite set of paths from A to B to C to D, and then turning on a black light. Or you know, a UV or something, and and just seeing this incredible interconnected web. And I think that so many people are um, at their heart. They enjoy learning and growth and new challenges that I think that this is a, an ultimately positive thing overall, but that doesn't mean it doesn't take some getting used to.
1: Now a lot of what you write about and a lot about what you talk about is is really about transition, moving from one job to another, getting hired in the first place, making changes in your life and having the guidebook to do that. I'm curious about your thoughts about people who are sort of in the middle of their career. So um, maybe they've been in a role for a year and a half, and they're not looking to necessarily make a change, but they want to make the most out of their day-to-day and find opportunities in that role. What thoughts do you have on how people can maintain momentum while they're in their, their roles themselves?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I really believe that you should never feel like you're completely dead in the water. That is such a frustrating feeling. I think that part of what we want to accomplish with with TheMuse.com and with the book is to give people things to think about, small tips, and ways to feel like they're moving forward every single day, whether or not they're even thinking about a major transition. And I'm actually really excited about the fact that a lot of people who use The Muse aren't looking for a new job yet. They simply enjoy um, having their kind of thinking pushed or their worldview shifted, you know, a little bit every single day. So for those people that are very happy where they are, I think some of the things that uh, we talk a lot about is how to assess where in your current role are you getting perhaps too comfortable or complacent? And are there areas where you might want to take on a stretch opportunity? And that could simply be um, doing something that you uh, you know you do every day in a slightly different way, looking for ways to make a process more efficient or automate it overall, yeah. um, looking for ways to collaborate with a new department. And again, some of this is easiest to frame in terms of when you're thinking about what's next, how you go out there and start to get that experience. But I think it can be valuable for people, even who are, as you said, in the middle of their careers, they're happy where they are. But I also think you know a lot of the people that tend to be drawn towards what we do are people that sort of think of themselves as lifelong learners. I mean that term is somewhat overused, but I, I think it's really true. It's it's how do I take where I am and without making any big changes or transitions, make sure that I'm I'm trying something new on a weekly or monthly basis and I'm setting small goals for myself and then finding ways to achieve them.
1: Can you give me some specifics even from your own career of, you know, a time when you realized that you were stuck?
0: Yeah, I've definitely had a couple of those. So let's see. I mean I'll give one example from early in my career. So I grew up thinking I was gonna work in the Foreign Service or International Relations, State Department, CIA, something like that. And I spent all of this time and effort getting into, breaking into that field, which is not an easy field to break into. And finally, one day I um, had started a internship at the State Department in Cyprus, uh, Nicosia, Cyprus, in the middle of the Mediterranean. And I realized maybe a month in, Oh my goodness. This is not what I thought it was going to be. And wait, let me
1: stop you there. That cuz that actually sounds pretty exciting to me. Why what made you realize like this is not where you want to be? How do you look around and decide something is off here?
0: You know what? It it was tough in some ways. Firstly because I wanted it so so badly and also because on its face, it was really sexy and exciting and yeah. this dream job. You know, I was working in the embassy on regional security. I got to spend a lot of time thinking about the balance of power in the region, the US government's role in that, you know, regional security threats. There was a, a battalion of Marines. At one point, they um, they had to do one of their training exercises in the embassy and they asked if I wanted to participate. And so I actually volunteered to play the role of a hostage taker and they, they cleared the embassy of other people, and then I took somebody else, quote unquote, hostage. And then they cut the power to the embassy and in full SWAT gear um, hunted me down and took you down. Yeah. So by the way, that was a moment because I literally almost peed. (laughs) I was so afraid. And I realized maybe I'm not cut out for the CIA because this really could be this could be a career problem. Um, But no, I I think that firstly, you've got to be really honest with yourself about what you enjoy and what you don't. And personally, for me, I love the subject matter I was working on. I find international policy totally fascinating. I, mean, I can geek out on it, I read about it in my spare time, but the day-to-day work, it just didn't leave me feeling that fulfilled. And I also realized that any sort of major government organization changes really slow. I love action, I love experimenting and trying and failing and, and trying things again. And you can't do that in foreign policy in the same way because you know you don't have a lot of room for error perfectly understandable, but not necessarily aligned with something that I realized was really important to me. And so I started to articulate uh, just to myself. Honestly, I had a little notebook. And so sort of nights and weekends, I would sort of scribble out, like, what are things that I love and what are things that that might be kind of frustrating? And I, I don't want to say, I mean, it was a great experience. I am yeah. so glad that I did it. But I started to see that there were these mismatches in between things that i wanted long term and things that this path could provide. And then of course i spent a lot of time with people who were more experienced than me, who were in it and would, you know, take others in the embassy out to coffee and ask them, you know, what tell me more about your job, what do you do in a typical day? But it's good it's important to get the good as well as the bad. And we talk about this in the book. You can't just say, you know, what do you love about being a foreign service officer? What are some of the great things you do? Everyone's job can sound great in the right context. But you also want to get to what are some of the things that are frustrating? What sort of person might not like this career path? What would you tell someone about some of the harder things that they're going to have to do or that they're going to encounter? And I find those questions so helpful because there's tough things about every single job. That is a fact of life. I love my job right now, but there are days when I go home just completely depleted. There are days that are really hard. And the question is, are those challenges challenges that you're willing to take along with the upside? And I realize that you know mm. there were things about a career in the foreign service including honestly the fact that you often can't start really taking a leadership role in face-to-face discussions or negotiations with you know officials from other companies until or sorry officials from other say. countries until you're um, at least of an age where it doesn't feel inappropriate like you know somebody basically told me flat out look doesn't matter how great you are at your job they're not going to send a 26 year old in to Take the lead. It'll just it it will be seen as potentially offensive by some people, and that that makes a lot of sense. But I also realized, you know, I wanted to be in a career path where if I had the ability to move ahead and to learn, I would be at least a little bit less constrained by things like, you know, what a senior dignitary from a foreign power might think just looking at me as a woman, as a, you know, as a young person. And I think those things are important to be honest about, and you also have to be willing to accept. If you, if you work hard for something and you start to get there and it, it's not as much what you thought it would be, I think it takes, you know, it, it takes some courage, but I think it's really important to be okay with admitting that to yourself and not continue to try to force yourself to be happy because, damn it, I wanted this and now I'm here, I'm going to make myself like it. I, that, that usually doesn't work out. Did you feel defeated by that at all? Oh, I mean, completely. I did. I, you know, I, I would say I alternated between feeling embarrassed because, of course, I told people, this is what I want to do. Sure, this yeah. is my dream. I'm so excited for this. So I felt embarrassed, um, almost a little humiliated. I felt exhausted. I think defeated is a, is a really accurate and good word by the sense that, you know, I, I got what I thought I wanted and maybe it isn't the right next step. But... At the same time, like you can sort of accept and, and allow those feelings for a period of time, but I think you can't let them stop you. And, you know, I was lucky in that my, the way I was raised was always that you learn from everything. And so if you fall flat on your face, whatever it is, as long as you don't irreparably hurt yourself or someone else, you learn. And I remember thinking, I can learn so much from this, even if I don't stay in this role. Right. And I look back on that, I'm so glad I did it. I would do it again if I were living my life over with, you know, with more insight. And I think that perspective can also be really helpful because a lot of those lessons and those skills and those experiences aren't lost, even if you move into a different path. It strikes
1: me that there's a real discipline around that. I mean, what you've essentially done, the book has worksheets. So there's a real structure that you're asking people to put into this of of doing the work to figure out if you're in the right spot and what when you might need to make a change would you recommend that people do that only when they're feeling some level of frustration or should they be doing this all the time? Should we be setting aside time even when we're happy in our roles to to fill out a worksheet and, and decide, you know, what the pros and cons are about your current state?
0: I obviously believe that people should be thinking about their careers on a pretty regular basis. When you think about how many hours of your life you spend working yeah. at your job with your colleagues, a little bit of investment in your career pay such incredible dividends. And I always think it's funny, you know, people talk about how your most important relationships and, and the things that you that you often spend most of your time and energy on, um, it's your family and your partner, and it's your career. And people go in many cases, spend years dating different people talking with their their friends, like, Oh, my goodness, yeah, what do I want? That. Yep. Exactly. And, and there's also a lot of thinking about is this the type of person and of course, That's different because you do eventually usually choose one person and commit a long amount of time. But I think that it's actually really interesting to let yourself think about your career a little bit the same way. Nobody sits around these days and goes, oh my gosh, I didn't marry my high school sweetheart. I'm a failure. Of course you didn't. You don't know anything about what's out there. And I think it's very similar when you think about your first job. Of course, it's not always the right one for the long term. Of course, you may think a career path is great and then you get in it and oh gosh, that has downsides. That is literally how the world works. I'm just a big believer in in having people think about what is going to make them most engaged, most satisfied, because when you're you're happy, when you're engaged, when you're fulfilled, you do your best work. You're more likely to move ahead, to get those opportunities, to step up, to succeed. And I, I don't mean succeed in some sort of corner office, big paycheck. Sometimes that's what you want and that's great, but it can also just mean having flexibility to live your life in the way you want or being able to do work that has meaning to you um, most days. And there's a lot of different uh, metrics of success, but I think that the more people are conditioning themselves and and getting into a habit of really thinking proactively about their career and their values and and what they want, um, the better off people will be.
1: Okay, so cobbler shoes question. When was or how recently have you done this for your own career?
0: Actually, I'm going through the process right now. And of course, you know, it looks different to some extent for me because I want to be doing this for as, as long as, uh, as I can have, you know, my kind of impact on the world. And so for me, though, literally on a, on a pretty regular basis, I would say to some extent always, but in a major way, every three to six months, I sit down and think about what do I do in a typical day? What's taking up my minutes, my hours, my days, my weeks? And are those the right places to be spending my time? That makes a lot of sense.
1: All right, Catherine, so I'd like to conclude this by moving out from the personal and back into looking towards the larger industry, the larger space around us. What industries do you see out there that are kind of leading the way in in terms of how they hire people, how they recruit people to their companies?
0: Interesting. So I'll give one answer that's perhaps a bit more expected and one that maybe is a little bit less so. I think the first is obviously the technology industry. But I want to caveat it by saying I see some of the best and some of the worst practices in the tech industry today. Um, I think that there are some companies and some um, sort of strains of thought within the technology industry that I think are doing a really interesting and sort of forward-thinking job of making the interview and hiring process a two-way street. So it's not just we, uh, you know, company with all the power, are vetting you, lowly prospective candidate, and deciding whether you're good enough to join our club. But it's much more of, look, we're an organization with a personality. There are, you know, we have a culture. There are things that are great about us. There are things that are not as great or that might be great for some people but not as good for others. And we want to make sure that it's a good fit on both sides. I'll give you one example. We work with hundreds of companies uh, on the Muse. We had one who came to us and said, look, we sometimes need people in certain roles to work weekends. And we used to feel embarrassed about that, but it led to us hiring people that really didn't want to work weekends. Yeah. And so now we want to try a tactic where we just say, look, for these roles, it's a sort of news cycle related role. Some people are going to have to work weekends. And here's a bunch of good things about working with us, but you need to accept that this is part of the job. And they found that their success rate, both of people that they interviewed to hire, but also hired to stay, was much higher because they were just honest. So I think that's a really positive thing. On the negative side, I'm a big believer in inclusion and diversity in the workplace. And I think that the word culture and particularly companies hiring for culture fit
1: Uh, has been,
0: you know, I think that as it was originally conceived, it's a really powerful thing. It's, you know, making sure that people align with the core values and attributes of a culture. But I often think it can be used unintentionally to create a monoculture and to have a, a group of people who all look and think the same saying, well, I want to get a beer with this person. Does this person seem cool. That is not culture fit. And I think that's actually creating the inability to, to see a product from multiple per, you know, perspectives, a problem from multiple perspectives, because companies are in some cases not um, building the workforces that represent a real diversity of thought and backgrounds and genders and ages and races. So. That's that. And then very quickly, because I realize I've been talking for a long time. No, it's fine. Um, I think that um, actually there's some really interesting things going on when you look at the way that consulting companies interview. I started my career at McKinsey, and I met my co-founder there. And it is really interesting. Not only do they look at a tremendous amount of data um, about an applicant when they're interviewing, but they actually will then look at how those people perform over several years within the organization, and they'll go back to then the next cycle of interviewing and hiring and say, we found that people who have these sorts of attributes or these sorts of things come up during the interview process tend to be very successful and these tend to be less successful. And so let's change how we're screening. Let's change the questions that we're asking or simply let's be more upfront about these are things that are important here. Are you on board with that? Um, And I think that sort of iterative process is really powerful and it's something that a lot of companies could learn from.
1: Yeah, it truly treats it as the investment that it should be.
0: Exactly. You know, your people are your most important asset. And I think businesses and business leaders have been saying that for a long time, but they haven't really been acting like it. And I'm excited to see the market start to shift where companies are investing the time and the attention and the um, recognition in people, talent and HR that I believe uh, it deserves.
1: All right, Catherine, thank you so much. We will leave it there. The book for those listening is called The New Rules of Work. And you will be able to find it very soon on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Apple Books, uh, IndieBound. Uh, Wherever you find books, you will find this. So best of luck. And thank you so much for your time, Catherine.
0: Thank you. It's been so great to be here.
1: Hey, thanks for listening. If you want to support the show, you could rate and review us on iTunes. It makes a huge difference and helps spread the word. And if you want to drop us a line, we're always around on Twitter, at The Gross Show. We'll be sure to respond.